welcome to mini-sode of the Caucasity. I'm Faiza. And I'm Nicole. Welcome, welcome, everyone. So um, our idea for... <laughs> okay. Okay, so... <laughs> Sorry, y'all. We're trying. We didn't know who's going to talk, so it's kind of a little... Little awkward yeah. silences here, well, but awkward, yeah, but it's all good. But yeah, no, we, we know each other. It's not awkward, but anyway, um, yeah. So I think for this mini, so we decided to um, do this because we just want to kind of briefly talk about the reproductive justice movement and how that differs from reproductive rights or reproduct or abortion rights and pro-choice movement. You know, all of these terms surrounding reproductive health and reproductive rights. Um, so yeah, the reproductive justice movement um, really comes from black women and black feminists. Um, and so, yeah, I think I'll just um, kind of get us into it. I'm gonna just talk about how yeah. the reproductive get into justice movement. Yeah, get into it. How get it came it. about. <laughs> um, it's, it's pretty Ooh. recent. Um, I wanna say, it, actually, actually I can't do math, so I'll just say the year. So the reproductive justice movement <laughs> was started by 12 black women um, in 1994 at a pro-choice conference. So the term itself is a combination of the terms reproductive rights and social justice. So you add them together and you get reproductive justice. And so that's yeah. math we can do. That, that is, yes. <laughs> what is that? I can do that math. <laughs> um, <laughs> So uh, what these women believed was that like true healthcare for women needed to include a full range of reproductive health services. Um, and so I kind of got this, you know, little background from an article called Reproductive Justice as Intersectional Feminism. And this is by Loretta J. Ross. Fun fact, Loretta J. Ross was one of those 12 women that uh, essentially created the reproductive justice movement. So she's very, very well versed and an expert um, in this. And so reproductive justice is based on a human rights framework. And these um, kind of human rights that they um, are based on is the right to choose to have a child, the right to choose not to have a child um, using birth control, abortion, or abstinence. So any type of contraceptives, um, and also the right to parent children in a safe and healthy environment free from violence. So that could be interpersonal violence or state sanctioned violence. Um, and so the reproductive justice movement, um, Ross expresses that it is universal, it is for everyone, um, they recognize everyone. Um, and so with this, in this article, she um, talks about intersectionality and how that um, intersectionality is used um, to kind of, it's, it's used to apply um, kind of these understandings of reproductive justice and like the practice of it and like also the theory of what reproductive justice is. Um, so intersectionality is applied to account for every person's unique needs um, to protect their human rights. Um, so Ross states that intersectionality is the process and human rights is the goal. Um, so yeah, I think, let's see, there's another really interesting part in this article that talks about like organizing and organizations surrounding reproductive justice. Um, and so way before 1994, before the term was created and before they realized like this could be a whole movement, black women are already organizing around um, reproductive, reproductive health of black women. I should say the reproductive health of black women and like what issues they face 
and how these issues are unique to them and not maybe experienced by other um, other women. And so this um, kind of meeting or conference, this conference was organized or started in like the 80s, the late late 80s, I want to say. Um, they didn't really, I don't know, it was hard to, to pinpoint like what the year was the article. Maybe I can't read well, we'll see. Um, but the, the, um, the conference was organized by the National Black Women's Health Project, which is now known as the Black Women's Health Imperative. Um, so Ross states that like, you know, in this conference, also like in the understanding of reproductive justice, um, it resists white ethnocentric feminist histories and theories and practices that were claimed to represent all women. And so, you know, abortion mm -hmm. advocacy at the time and at the conference that these women were at in 1994, um, was really, of course, spearheaded by white women or more, of course, white feminists. And so yeah. these, these women did not really understand, you know, the intersectional oppressions of white supremacy and misogyny and neoliberalism. And I think that specifically is like neoliberal capitalism and how that affects right. black women, indigenous women, other women of color. Um, and so Ross really just talks about how like, you know, because they have failed to realize that and that's why intersectionality and like that understanding is so important in this, mm -hmm. in this um, movement and in practicing that. Um, and so also the, um, there is another organization called the Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective that was um, founded in 1997. Um, so that, like after now that reproductive justice is born and like there's a whole term right. for it, um, they mm -hmm. were able to organize and they will be able to push women of color to the forefront of this movement. Mm -hmm. um, and that and, and included all women of color. So you have indigenous you know, activists, you have indigenous women, you have Latino women, you have um, Asian women. Um, yeah, and you have really just anyone um, there. So they're really essentially just all inclusive and really, really um, to the point of like, intersectionality. Um, and so it's so intersectionality um, to kind of end here, I wanna point out that this movement um, uses intersectionality also to kind of reimagine and you know value black women's bodies most especially um, because mm -hmm. um, you know, black women have been constantly dehumanized and constantly devalued by white supremacy throughout the entire history of uh, this country. And so these women's bodies mm. were used as objects of control, of reproductive control. Um, and so reproductive justice views blackness not as a negative site, but rather a site of subjugation. So this was, that I think means that, you know, a site of subjugation is like, this is a, this were their conditions that didn't brought the, mm. that they didn't bring upon themselves. This was, you right. know, imposed by other folks you know, white folks to establish this, this hierarchy to establish power and reinforce white supremacy. Um, and so in that understanding right. and in that, in, in that history of how were black women's bodies used in history of like experimentation and forced sterilization and um, also mm -hmm. just like coercion into how they um, recognize their bodies and how, how they use their bodies. And um, they're trying to actively fight against that and just advocate for their human rights. And I think that's where the human rights comes right. from. Yeah, so that's just a little kind of history and just under, not history, but like just the origins of the reproductive justice movement and just like mm -hmm. understanding what, what they do and how they incorporate intersectionality. Right, thank you Faiza for, for summing that up. I think it's important 
to understand the roots of every move, any movement, because I think it gives a lot of understanding to why the movement exists and why it's relevant and needed in society. Um, so my article I read uh, is, is called, it's literally just called Reproductive Justice. And it's written by uh, Zakia Luna. I'm sorry if I'm butchering that name. Um, and Kristen Luker. Uh, they're two women that work. Um, uh, Luna works um, for, I think it's the, well, I just looked this up. It's the Center on Reproductive Rights and Justice at Berkeley Law. And she's also a professor at um, UC Santa Barbara. And then Kristen Luker works um, in the law school at Berkeley as well. Um, but they wrote this article kind of giving us like kind of more like a historical analysis, analysis of like the reproductive rights movement and like the emergence of reproductive justice and kind of explaining why um, a lot of historical events and this kind of common thread of like white supremacy, as I read it, I kind of felt this like reoccurring theme of white supremacy um, and misogyny as well, obviously, because this is a woman's issue. Mm -hmm. um, kind of um, but Jen, I just wanted to kind of, you know, cherry pick some things that I think are important for listeners to understand, because I feel like, A, this is not history that's taught to us. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, a lot of the reproductive rights movement um, and feminist movements of the first movement with like suffrage movement and like abolitionist movement and the second one being in like the 60s and 70s is very much whitewashed. Mm -hmm. um, and two, I think that it's just important, I feel like, to understand history, because if you don't understand history, you don't understand, like, where we're going. Like, if you don't understand yeah. the past, you can't really understand the present or the future. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. So, as Faiza mentioned, reproductive justice comes from, you know, those 12 Black women in 1994, um, and it kind of comes from this understanding of, well, as women of color women of color and you know have additional almost like I don't want to maybe you want to say like barriers to accessing full-on re proper reproductive health that white women weren't really taking into account and I think a lot of this is really shown in I really wanted to bring up was so um the article talked about obviously with like slavery um within the case, you know, there were like, you know, slaves and indentured servants. So in, in indentured servitude, um, uh, this was mostly, you know, low class white women coming from England. And oftentimes they would, you know, like offer their, you know, manual labor to like mm -hmm. get a, to, to cross from England to the United States. Um, if they had the baby while they were in servitude, it added on to their like sentence because they'd have to take time off and in slavery that obviously didn't really happen but there was a lot of um because you know you're a slave for your whole life it wasn't for you know 20 years um <clears throat> but in general um with that kind of with slavery um it was kind of like women uh black slaves didn't really have you know a choice and what happened to their children yeah. um, because they were someone else's property. And mm -hmm. um, they're kind of talking about this concept of, you know, 
they could be ripped apart from their children. They had no say in that. Also talking about, you know, with rape um, occurring, you know, masters raping their slaves. Um, they didn't really have a choice on when they could have a child. Yeah. Um, um, the many unharmful abortions, um, very harmful and unsafe abortions that occurred because of that, things like that, um, that I think are really important to talk about. This like really violent history um, that often isn't really touched upon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of later into like the eight, uh, 1800s, um, 19th century, um, kind of after um, Civil War time with, you know, the evolution of industrialization and the advancement of industrialization and capitalism basically um america was largely agricultural i would say up until industrialization obviously um so for more um middle class lower class families who had farms it was more convenient for them to have lots of children because that's free labor, right? Right. You have 10 children, you know, that's, you know, 20 extra hands tending the fields. Whereas with um, industrialization, that changes because there's other types of jobs that are not solely agricultural. And also there's new technologies that make agricultural, agricultural work much easier and don't need as many people working the fields necessarily. Um, But anyway, so with industrialization, obviously the birth rate declines, especially in white native born women. So they stop having babies, not stop completely, but they don't, they're not having 10 kids or maybe right. having five, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it's a lot, but so just less than 10. It's a lot, but like, <laughs> you know, your kids would die a lot. So I don't know. fair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, so there was a big push. Um with this declining birth rate to, and also like kind of this empowerment that um, we've kind of talked about, you know, in the first episode and, you know, other episodes to come, like that women are like, wait, I like can say no to having sex and like can't stop having my children. And it's kind of this like awakening maybe, I don't know. Um, so anyway, so then um, basically there was a lot of, um, I don't know how to say this nicely, but there's a lot of, okay, let's say this. There's a lot of um, federal and state kind of regulations that started to restrict um, access to like contraception and abortions. Um, obviously many many of the contraceptives were more readily available to higher um, income women. Yeah. But in general, like those things were starting to become restricted. And I think this was due to because to the fact that there was an increasing birth rate of immigrant um, of immigrant children who are being born from immigrant um, mothers, and that was seen as oh well they're not native born Americans, right? Yeah, um, which is a whole nother thing. Um, and and on top of that, you know, yeah, like, um, sorry, you're white, you're not native to this native land. to this land, up, yeah. Like, <laughs> okay, I have many issues with like the whole nativist. Thing. It's okay. it's super racist. Anyway. So and yeah, that that's why. It's yeah, not Just, great. Yikes. Um. So anyway, so the, like all these regulations really start pushing this anti-abortion rhetoric, mm-hmm. which I honestly never learned about. I never learned about like oh, so the reason why like abortions were being kind of taken away and restricted is because you were scared that more women of color and immigrant women were having children children and you wanted a certain workforce and a certain population to be born so that was happening kind of at the turn of the century 1800s and so basically there was um this was basically to encourage 
white births have to happen. Yeah. Um, and then another little tidbit I wanted to throw out there. So kind of, um, so we all know Roe v. Wade happened in 1973 and that kind of gave women the right to have an abortion mm-hmm. up, um, up until the end of the first trimester. Um, right. It's first trimester, right? Yeah. First, I think. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the first. Um, so with that, um, I think it's really important for people to understand because I feel like there's a kind of a history that's not really talked about. In fact, before Roe v. Wade, many affluent white women definitely had access to abortions and definitely had access to contraceptives and definitely did not need to worry about something like Roe v. Wade. But yet, who is at the forefront of the reproductive rights movement? Middle, upper class white women. These same women. What? (laughs) What? (laughs) Like, because um, according to the article, they talk a lot about how um, both abortions and contraceptives could be made available for women who had access to private physicians. Who has access to private physicians? Yeah. <laughs> Middle and upper class white women. <laughs> had so, access. Um, this just shows yet again how race and class determine your access to reproductive health. It's right. not the women who are forefronting these movements who are claiming that they want all women to have access to these things really just want access for themselves or really Mm -hmm. just want to be seen as equal to white men under the law. Yeah. Which is really, honestly, part of my French really fucked up because I'm like, you're missing the whole point of being a feminist. It's not about, I don't know, that's white feminism and that's not (laughs) white feminism. Um, Yeah. So anyway, so I think that's really important to understand for historical context. So Roe v. Wade really, allowed for all women to get access to abortions but really there's still many barriers for lots of women to gain access to abortion Mm -hmm. um and yeah and I think some other you know I think key understand I think that's a really important at least for me key understanding there's also um many you know you know legal cases that are pretty controversial like Buck v Bell which is basically um the Supreme Court basically issues um, a Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes issues his constitutional appraisal of forced sterilization. So this article also talks a lot about forced sterilization and a lot of the issues, which Faisal will cover in another episode, goes into great detail about this. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to spoil too much. But yeah, I think that's another part of history that's oftentimes overlooked, not talked about how forced sterilization was very much legal. Um, for many decades, many years, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. hundreds of years, really. <laughs> um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, so I think this article kind of goes into that history and explaining the context of why reproductive justice is kind of, is a, is a, is a necessary, comes out of necessity. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think those are just, I just thought when I was reading the article, it really stood out to me, spoke to me. Um, yeah, I think it's really important to understand. And I think if Roe v. Wade would be appealed, it just kind of shows which women, who, who would be more impacted by it? Yeah, exactly. Right? It's not women like me. Like I have access to healthcare. I'm a white middle upper class woman. This wouldn't impact me. It might impact, you know, some of my friends of color, you know, some of my white friends who are more lower class, 
nothing to say like you know against them in that way but I'm just saying it's just like that's historically who's been impacted so what's to say when Roe v. Wade gets appealed those are the same people who will be impacted not saying that Roe v. Wade's going to be appealed but honestly Amy Cody Barrett just scares me I mean so, that's it, like yeah. <laughs> I mean there's so many things on the line there's so many things to be worried about and we have like the right like we should be worried about it I think just knowing like who is in the Supreme Court or just like who is against um you know Roe v Wade and and just like yeah really yeah that's all I have to say (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah so I think we just wanted to throw that out there um kind of define some terms so everyone's up to date on what's going on not up Mm -hmm. to date on what's going on but just aware of what reproductive justice is and yeah so you know thank you for listening and catch us in our next episode The songs in our episode, Cheeky in our intro, and Thinking Free in our outro are by Ketza from the Free Music Archive. Ketza is licensed under an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 Creative Commons international license.